I know everything that's wrong with my films, believe you me. But if you make a film about a soldier who goes AWOL and murders a pregnant nurse, something that's happened probably once in history, it's called searingly realistic analysis for society. If I make a film like Love Actually, which is about people falling in love, and there are about a million people falling in love in Britain today, it's called a sentimental presentation of an unrealistic world. And I just don't believe that. Welcome to the Story Grid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the Story Grid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. My name is Valerie Francis, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow certified Story Grid editors Jari Bolander, Leslie Watts, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. Each week, one of us proposes a favorite movie as a great example of a significant story principle. That editor has to then make the case for their position with the help of a partner, while two of us play devil's advocate to test the idea. Okay, this week, we traveled back to the fundamentals as we analyze one of Kim's favorites, About Time, to discover how well it embodies the concept of an internal global genre. This 2013 British romantic fantasy was written and directed by Richard Curtis. Kim will be on the A-team, ably assisted by the lovely Leslie, and Anne and Jari will be on the B-team. They're going to test the theory by evaluating it separately and from other perspectives so that in the end, we get a complete 360-degree view of the story principle of a global internal genre. All right, Kim is going to start us off with the genre and a quick one-sentence summary of each of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. Kim, take it away. So I apologize already because my one sentence is, my one sentence summaries are a little longer than one sentence. So the genre here we're saying is worldview maturation. Here's the beginning hook. At 21 years old, Tim's father tells him the big family secret, that the men in their family can travel in time. Tim decides to use his newfound gift to help him get a girlfriend. He meets Mary entirely organically and they hit it off and she gives him her number. But when Tim uses time travel to save his roommate from a botched opening night of his big play, he changes his own timeline and no longer has her number because now they've never met. Rather than abandoning his good deed for his roommate, Tim looks for another way to re-meet Mary. Middle build. After a bit of orchestration, Tim and Mary fall in love, they marry, and they have their first daughter, Posey. But when Tim tries to use time travel to fix his sister's derailed lifestyle, he returns to find his daughter is now a son. He returns to Posey's birth to reset things and learns from his father that traveling back before his children's birth risks losing them. And instead, he must let his sister reap her own consequences. The ending payoff. When Mary tells Tim she wants to have another child, Tim must face his hardest choice of all. Having another baby means he won't be able to go back to see his father ever again, who has recently passed away from cancer. Tim visits him one last time to say goodbye and then embraces a life without time travel, instead choosing to recognize each moment as the precious gift it is the first time around. Okay, and you're arguing that this film is a great example for an internal genre. So why don't you tell us about that? When I first watched this movie years ago, I was looking for comp titles for my own novel, and I came across it on Amazon. The movie cover was this cute couple, Donald Gleason and Rachel McAdams. They're all dressed up. They're laughing together. And it was written and directed by Richard Curtis, the same guy who made Love Actually. 
perfect. So I rented it and I watched it with my sister. And when it was over, we were both just stunned. It wasn't at all what we thought it was going to be. But it was so much more and it was so much better. About Time certainly has a love story in it, but it's not a love story, not in the global sense. The values at stake, the core event, the ending payoff, the conventions, obligatory scenes, all the different aspects tell a very different story, and it's a global internal genre, specifically worldview maturation. And it's one of my favorite stories ever, because these are my favorite stories ever. So how do they get away with this? You know, marketing one thing, delivering another. How do we know that it isn't a love story? These are the things that I wanted to examine and look at for myself as a writer, and I thought it would be really helpful for others as well. So Leslie, can you please show us why this is not a love story? Sure. So first I want to say that romantic comedies and love story genre stories are big crowd pleasers. And when they meet reader expectations, they often do really well commercially. But many lack the substance that allows the story to stick with you, and they don't really change the way that people see themselves and the world, which is totally fine because sometimes that's what a reader needs, and sometimes that's the writer's goal. No problem there. But if you want to write a story that really sticks with your readers, following the path that About Time takes is a great one to choose. So as a general rule, Global internal genre stories have smaller audiences, even when they're critically acclaimed. You know those stories I'm talking about, the ones that have all the the special symbols and certificates on the thing, but they don't do so well at the box office. Well, one way to write a global internal genre story that is also a commercial success is to sell readers what they want and then give them what they need. Now, that's not a bait and switch scenario where you promise one thing and deliver something else entirely. The aim is to deliver on the promise of the love story by meeting those conventions and obligatory scenes in innovative ways, but to also deliver a robust internal genre that leaves the reader with more than they anticipated. So another example of this is one that we've discussed on the podcast, and it's Gladiator, which is quite a bit different from About Time. Now, this could easily be misread, misinterpreted to be an action story, but from our analysis, we saw a clear status admiration story with a society political secondary genre. Okay, so say you want to do this. But and you're looking at about time, how can you tell that it's not a global love story? Because as I said, it meets the conventions and obligatory scenes for a love story. But if you'll notice, Tim and Mary reach the commitment stage or that life value of commitment on the love-hate scale of the love story at about the midpoint when he proposes and Mary accepts. The writers could have extended the love story into a marriage plot, but he didn't. The couple experiences stressful events, for example, Katie's addiction, an accident, and Tim's father's illness, but it doesn't threaten the commitment that Tim and Mary have formed, so this is not a marriage plot. Now, here's an important point. Just because a story meets the conventions and obligatory scenes for a genre doesn't mean that it's the global. But also keep in mind that although readers and viewers may reach a consensus about a particular story, often the global genre is in the eye of the beholder, especially when it's an internal genre, because we bring our own frame of reference to any story that we consume. Okay, so we know that the love story ends at about the midpoint, 
But what, how else can we tell that this is not a global love story? Well, we can investigate the true global genre by looking at the in and the out. So Stephen Pressfield has a great series of blogs about these two moments in a story, and that's the opening image and the closing image. Now, you can substitute mood, voice, monologue, or other things for the image in a written story. So what do we mean by the opening and closing images? This is the first thing you get and the last thing you get. So it's not necessarily the global inciting incident, not necessarily the resolution scene, though it's, you know, certainly would be part of the resolution. So the rules, according to Stephen Pressfield, are that the opening and closing images of the story should look as alike as reasonably possible. And at the same time, the out or the closing image should be as far away as we can make it in emotional and narrative terms from the in. Does that sound a lot like surprising yet inevitable? It does to me. And so this whole idea really resonates. Now, he also says, even if you haven't seen a frame of the movie except these ins and outs, you get a pretty good sense of what the story is about and how the hero has changed from the beginning to the end of the tale. Okay, so let's look at that for about time. After Tim offers his honest but loving assessments of his family members, he says this about his and their lives together. All in all, it was a pretty good childhood, full of repeated rhythms and patterns. By the time I was 21, we were still having tea on the beach every single day. Skimming stones, eating sandwiches, summer and winter, no matter what the weather. And every Friday evening, a film, no matter what the weather. Okay, so that's the in. Now, here's the out. The truth is, I now don't travel back at all, not even for the day. I just try to live every day as if I've deliberately come back to this one day, to enjoy it as if it was the full, final day of my extraordinary, ordinary life. And then he goes on to say, We're all traveling through time together, every day of our lives. All we can do is do our best to relish this remarkable ride. So in the inn, we have an assessment about good and bad. You know, all in all, it's a pretty good life, pretty good childhood. But in the out, it's as if he's seeing the extraordinary in the ordinary. And so he's seeing similar events, everyday events, but we see a life value shift represented by the in and the out that is one of a maturing perspective. I wanted to make one point about the reality genre for about time, because it's just barely in the realm of fantasy. Most of what happens is pretty realistic, but it shows how this is a continuum and we don't normally see this rather than a black and white choice. So here, time travel is more of a plot device. Well, for a story like Game of Thrones, it's more fundamental to the story's core. So it would be hard to tell about time without the time travel element, but another plot device could stand at its place. You couldn't really do the fantasy element of Game of Thrones and still have the same story. 
Okay, so that's what I have to say about the love story and why this looks more like an internal genre. Perfect. Thank you so much, Leslie. So let's talk about what it is, a worldview maturation story. So here's the cause and effect statement woven together. So when a sympathetic protagonist, so in that case we have Tim, who is kind and awkward and, as he says, orange, with a naive black and white views of the world, so in this case he has limited experience in life and love, and mistakenly conceived goals, he thinks that he can use time travel to fix everything. He experiences a loss or trial, in this case Katie's accident, his dad's death, and a new baby that no longer allows him to travel back, that shows them that the world is multilayered and imperfect. In this case, we can't fix things, but we can still love. Now they embrace better suited goals and actions. He no longer needs to travel back to be fully present in each moment. So when Leslie and I did the internal genres series, you know, we began with the cause and effect statements and who the protagonist is and what the changes that happens. And then we moved to the life values and we kind of looked at how are these life values being explored and how do they move through that cause and effect through the story, the beginning hook, the middle build, the ending payoff. So here are the life value assessment for about time as a worldview maturation plot. So in the beginning hook, we move from what I'm saying is naivete to acknowledged naivete. So it's the idea that I don't know what I don't know. I'm naive to, okay, I don't know everything, but I know enough to know that I don't know everything. Um, So he begins with his limited experience in love and life, and he learns about his time travel ability. Awesome. But he doesn't really know how to use it, and he tries to use it to fix things and to get love, but it backfires on him a couple times. In the middle build, though, he moves from naivete to the negation of the negation, naivete masked as sophistication. And then by the end of the middle build, he's come back around to some cognitive dissonance. He's reached a level of maturity. He just doesn't quite know what to do with it. So, you know, he uses time travel to successfully navigate his relationship with Mary. Um, He solves all kinds of mishaps. The best man at his wedding, for one, which is a hilarious series of of events. And then he believes that he can fix, you know, his sister's situation by taking her back to the New Year's Eve party when she first met her crappy boyfriend. But then he realizes that traveling back before his daughter Posey's born is too big of a risk. So instead, he's forced to do nothing and just accept Katie's events as they happen. And I feel like that understanding of realizing that he can't fix things is really his where he jumps from, you know, naivete, master sophistication over into the positive of, oh, crap, what do I do? How do I do this? And then finally, in the end, you know, he's in this place of cognitive dissonance, and it's really uncomfortable. His wife asks him if they can have another child, and his father has already passed away. And so now he knows that he won't be able to go back. So again, this is moving to what what is your life really about? What's meaningful? And understanding what's necessary. And he mentions you know, embracing the future means letting go of my father in the past. And and that's exactly what he does. And he moves to this place of sophistication. Um, and as Leslie said, with his out, he doesn't even travel anymore because he understands how much the moments, those ordinary moments um, mean to us. The other thing that I took a look at in this story, which has also mirrored my own journey as a writer, which is trying to understand subplots (laughs) and how they are vehicles to your global internal change. So when you have them, when to cut them, all those kinds of things. And I think that About Time has a really great case study for how to look at subplots and how the other characters are supporting that global change. So I've identified six lessons that Tim kind of goes through. In the beginning hook, he's got two. The middle build, he's got two. And the ending payoff, he's got two. So 
in the beginning hook, lesson number one is Charlotte. So this is Tim's first attempt to use time travel to get a girlfriend. His sister's friend Charlotte comes to stay for a couple months over the summer. And, you know, despite all his attempts of, uh, you know, making mistakes and going back and fixing them and that kind of thing, he realizes all the time travel in the world can't make someone love you. So lesson number one. Lesson number two is uh, Harry versus Mary. So after Tim meets Mary, then he helps Harry fix his botched play because the actor had forgotten his lines. And so Tim's there in the wings holding up signs so the guy will remember, only to realize that now he doesn't have Mary's phone number because he went to the play instead of going to the restaurant with his friend Jay to meet her and all that stuff. So now Tim must face more limitations of his gift. Even if you go back in time, he still can't be in two places at once. Then in the middle build, lesson three is really about Charlotte versus Mary. So after Tim reconnects with Mary and all is well, he runs into Charlotte one night while out with his friend. This time, Charlotte takes an interest in him and invites him out to dinner and then back to her place. So Tim walks her back, but instead of going inside, he says goodnight and that he has to be somewhere right now. And he rushes home to where Mary is sleeping and proposes. So this lesson is even when he has the chance to do anything and undo it, Tim makes the right choice, realizing that our choices still matter and we will always be stuck with ourselves and ultimately that he just only wants Mary anyway. So lesson number four in the middle build is Katie versus Posey. So when Tim is determined to help Katie fix her life by returning to the New Year's Eve party uh, where she met her crappy boyfriend, he in return discovers his own daughter is now a son and traveling back in time before the child's birth risks losing them. So he returns to the day of Posey's birth, and Katie is forced to reap the consequences of her actions. And as Mary said, if it's really going to be fixed, it's something she has to do herself. So in the ending payoff, lesson number five is Tim's father versus the new baby. So Tim's father passes away from cancer, but Tim is still able to travel back to one of their special chats or rounds of ping pong until Mary tells him that she wants to have another child. This will mean that Tim will no longer be able to travel back to see his dad. And he's, as he says, embracing the future means letting go of my dad. And so he has one final goodbye with him and when the babe, right before the baby is about to be born, and then he moves on. Then lesson, the final lesson, lesson number six, is Tim's own revelation. So Tim's father had told him his formula for happiness. Step one, live each day like normal life. And then step two was live each day again, almost exactly the same, only this time noticing all the joy and splendor you've missed the first time around. So, And then in the end, Tim takes it a step further and doesn't travel back at all, instead choosing to live as though he traveled back that second time and with intention of soaking up every second. So we can see how these subplots help us move those life values going from naivete to acknowledge na- naivete up to, you know, naivete, massive sophistication, et cetera, et cetera. Till we finally reach, go through our cognitive dissonance and we reach this level of sophistication and maturity where we understand the way the world works, what's important, and therefore are able to embrace better goals and better actions. What's interesting, when Leslie and I met to talk about this story and kind of the approach we wanted to take, she pointed out that that time is a device for worldview stories. It's a really great way to get us to see a different perspective and to show us something we wouldn't have been able to see otherwise, these kinds of things. And we were able to put some 
examples together for some worldview stories. So an education plot, for example, is like Groundhog's Day, where he's able to go from a meaningless life to meaning, but only because he's been stuck in the same day for a really long time. And so that's where he gets his education about about what life really means. Maturation, of course, this one that we're talking about, about time. Revelation, we talked about with Arrival. And disillusionment, we're still trying to cobble a couple ideas together. We have some hunches that we want to look at, possibly our town and in adaptation. Anne's suggestion from earlier this season, we looked at the subplot there for Susan. And in this case, it's not time travel. And even in our town, it's not time travel. But it's the idea of looking back, like this hindsight that you get from looking at things from different valences, even within your own life. And so those are just some interesting things to think about of how you can use, whether it's time travel itself or whether it's the perspective of the character before, during, and after something and and just how you might use time and all of its different forms to tell a really great worldview story. All right. So Kim and Leslie have very ably brought us through About Time, which is pitched as a romantic comedy, but is perhaps not a romantic comedy at all, but instead a worldview story. All right. Anne and Jari, what do you think of this? Well, I'm 100% in agreement with you, Kim. This movie was marketed as a love story, and it's not. And I don't know whether that was cynically because the studio, you know, said it would sell better if we marketed it as a love story or, you know, out of a genuine ignorance of what kind of story this really is, which is an internal genre, or just that, you know, Richard Curtis is known for love stories. And so that's what they did. But it definitely, the picture up front definitely says, oh, romantic comedy. And that's actually kind of what I was half expecting to watch when I sat down to watch it. Then I, then I heard that there was this premise of time travel. So I just wanted to get that set up front. There's, I have no argument with your basic premise. I, I can't argue with it. It's a great basic premise. So I'm very, very sorry to be the person in the room who really disliked this movie because I know how much you loved it. And I'm sorry, Kim, you're my friend and I don't want to disagree with you on that level, but I didn't like it. And I'll d- give a couple of disclaimers here. First of all, I'm not the target audience for a romantic comedy in general. And my main interest in this movie was the time travel element also Bill Nye, because who doesn't love Bill Nye and everything. But also, I can appreciate time travel as this, this light fantasy element, but I couldn't get past the way the story played fast and loose with its own internal time travel laws. Now, this may just be the science fiction geek in me coming out. But for instance, it says it tells us explicitly that you can't go back to a time before the conception of your child Uh, without risking the outcome of that child because, and this is specific, explicit in the story, a specific egg and a specific sperm uh, create that child and any little change could change that and make the child come out, in this case, a son instead of a daughter. So we, we actually see that happen. But there's no mention of all the other problems the time traveler could cause, like in other people's lives. It's just about him and his sperm and her egg, I guess. And so... If conception is, in this fantasy world, the only thing that can be interfered with, why does Tim hesitate to travel back to see his father one last time when the baby is has already been conceived, you know, nine months before and is due at any moment? The other thing that bothered me was why introduce a father-to-son transmitted superpower, which is explicit in the beginning of the story, then simply ignore all the implications of Tim accidentally changing his daughter Posey into a son 
Um, He lets his own sister go through with her drunk driving accident out of love for his little girl, which is admirable. But the story never once addresses the obvious moral implications of passing this dubious superpower on to a son. And they don't even, it doesn't even come up when Tim and Mary finally have a son of their own in the sort of legitimate normal course of time. So I'm definitely coming from a position of not a fan. And I wanted to be because I really wanted to like this movie. And I think you guys make an excellent studied case for it being worldview maturation plot. And a large part of me wants to say, yeah, okay, sure, it's maturation. I don't even want to discuss it. But the question is to me, is it maturation? Because I experienced it as a poorly formed morality story. And here's why. In the end, the protagonist does sacrifice something important for the sake of his family. And morality stories are about sacrifice. So here we have a young hero, and like the young hero in every story with a young hero, he undergoes some maturation, because that's just like inherent in in every story about young people, basically. But he completely fails to address the real moral issues that are inherent in the very premise of the story, and that bothered me a lot, because I think it would have been a better story if they'd taken it down the morality path. As soon as it was clear that Tim and Mary were going to be together for good, like basically at the midpoint, Tim's time-traveling superpower becomes a secret between them. And I began to realize that, wow, this must have been equally a secret between Tim's father and Tim's mother throughout the many years of their marriage, because they are you know, shown to have been married for you know, many long years, very happily. And it unfolds that the father has been living every single day twice, once to kind of put up with life's little annoyances, and the second time to become more heart-centered and enjoy the good things. So in effect, he's lived twice as long as everyone around him and has become wise and lovable, adored by all as a result. In short, everybody thinks he's awesome, and nobody knows that he has sort of cheated to become that way. This, All of this made this a morality story for me. Uh, so Tim's wife doesn't know about it either. Mary. She doesn't have any clue that on their first date, he has had three chances to improve his sexual performance with her. She only knows about the final one, where apparently it was great because they wind up on the floor, you know, entangled up in the blankets and stuff. So the movie never addresses this problem of trust and lies. And to me, it's like a fundamental morality problem with the movie itself. The secret keeping that should have made the courtship love story into a marriage story involving secrets and lies between the spouses. And I think it still could have been very charming and funny with that premise. But instead, they just end the love story at the midpoint. Jari's going to say a little more about that in a sec. So, you know, I realize that a morality genre story is isn't just about some ethical decision for the protagonist. Every protagonist has to make ethical decisions. Morality story is about selfishness and altruism. And I just think the movie would have been better if it had explored what happens when Tim keeps a secret from his wife for years, and then in the end effectively sacrifices his superpower for her and their children. So as I experienced it, this this maturation story was damaged by the presence of this unaddressed moral problem. So it's a long-winded way of saying that I had that incomplete genre feeling of frustration at the end. I didn't feel satisfied. And it was especially so because I really wanted to enjoy it based on its charming time travel premise. Yeah. I mean, I I actually like this movie because I'm a real sucker for English accents and the dopey, awkward leading man who's perfectly played by um, in the Tim character. And he just can't get his shit together or actually keep his shit together. So it's kind of the perfect one for that. But as Ann and Leslie mentioned, the, the love story arc 
kind of ends in the middle and it's the courtship arc and then obviously goes to the marriage arc. And then this happens sort of abruptly when Tim sees Charlotte, which is the old kind of flame, quote unquote, and he's, you know, repeatedly going back in time because he's either wants to feel something for her or is like weird about whether Mary's the one. And then (laughs) in the end, runs back and proposes. It's sort of this weird, awkward kind of moment because it feels like they just bolted the two of them together. And I agree with Anne that it could have been a lot better if there was just one type of love story arc throughout the whole thing. I also thought it was a morality plot. Um, I actually thought that uh, Groundhog Day was also a, a morality plot because he's got to figure out how to use his power for good or his knowledge for good. And in the end, you know, he, he kind of redeems himself after he's sort of reincarnated as if he's Buddhist. But the big secret is that Tim can time travel and he keeps that from his wife, Mary. His father kept it from his wife. And it's just unsatisfying to me that that was sort of not played up slash used as a way to kind of move the marriage love story forward or or built that whole arc. And the reason is, is that, you know, the love marriage story has has a deep arc that takes you through to intimacy, intimacy being the ultimate. And it concerns commitment relationships and certainly has early stages of passion, but it takes love into a realistic realm. And there may have negative incidences within it, such as betrayal. Um, And there's always this win, but lose, lose, but win ending. And it's prescriptive or cautionary as, as, as as a love story goes. And there was none of that in here. It was almost like the love story slash marriage between Tim and Mary was just sort of window dressing. I always like to say spice on the spice in the, you know, in the mole or whatever, but it didn't feel connected. For me, it was a little unsatisfying. I didn't just like the taste of it. It felt muddled. Still liked it, Kim. Still a great movie. <laughs> so, as much as it breaks my heart that you didn't like the movie, Anne, um, and I wanted to ask, what is the opposite of a laugh track? Aww. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> so, I certainly understand how breaking, you know, their established time travel rules makes it intolerable for you. I get it because I have to say those things definitely bothered me when I first saw it. I, you know, I think I scratched my head about them for a few days, like, what did I just watch? And I probably even Googled it to figure out like all the plot holes and that kind of thing. So there definitely are those things. And what I think is really interesting, you had given us that interview with Richard Curtis and how he mentions, he's like, trust me, I know everything that's wrong with all of my movies, which I thought was really, really charming. Um, And so what I like (laughs) is that I'm sure they see them, but they choose them anyway, because the kind of story they're trying to tell is different. So yeah, and for me, there was so much more in the story that stayed with me for all those right reasons. And you know, much of it relates personally to my own novel that I was trying to write, um, or am writing, which is why, of course, I went looking for it and came across it in the first place. But the mention that it felt like a muddled morality story is really interesting to me. And I think there's a, a reason behind that. So when Norman Friedman, who we 
call the father of the internal genres. Uh, He first wrote Forms of Plot in 1955, which was the first time someone had delineated between internal and external genres. He listed maturation as a plot of character, which was his term for morality plots. And he had a separate plot of thought, which were his worldview stories, called Effective, um, which was very similar, but still different enough for him that he wanted to categorize it separately. So, And he also had um, this additional morality plot, Degeneration, which Anne and I used in our basis for our argument for Manchester by the Sea. So there were these extra you know, genres, and maturation, as I said, was listed under the morality category. Now, Sean takes a more streamlined approach. Um, and he combines some of these similar genres, and he categorizes maturation under worldview because it is ultimately about a character going from a naive black and white view of the world, metabolizing some intense cognitive dissonance, and ultimately embracing this paradoxical gray that is the actual truth with a capital T. But unlike education or disillusionment subplots, in order for a maturation story to work, the protagonist must demonstrate their newly held sophisticated worldview through action. And it's this action often is a form of sacrifice, which is, I'm guessing, why Norman Friedman tied it to morality, that there is going to be some change, you know, change happens through loss, right? And so because of this loss, now they're going to have to basically accept that loss and shift over to embracing this, you know, a a different worldview. And there is going to be a, I think it feels like a selfless act in the end to give up what that thing that you didn't want to let go of, that you were holding onto so tightly, realize that that's not the way it is, let it go and then choose a different course. It feels like morality, So all that to say, the nuance between the genres is a real thing, and it's never going away. So, you know, I would say like everything, there's this bell curve of variation, and there's some maturation stories that may feel, you know, totally like worldview, and others may lean towards um, feeling more like morality. And I think this is okay, and I think um, it's important to understand the specific story that you're trying to tell, and then execute that as well as you can using the model that that helps you tell it. Like, does a morality model help you tell the story better, or does a worldview model help you tell the story better? And that's really why we say pick a genre, because it's going to be the model that you can follow with intention to help tell the specific story that you're trying to tell. An understanding that your protagonist is going to likely change, you know, on more than one internal level. Their fortune or their, you know, their status may change, their worldview may change, and their their actions and character may change. So you have to look at which one is changing the most, which is the one that you want is your desired change that you want to come cl- come through clearly to your audience. So for about time and writer-director Richard Curtis, I think it comes down to that final line that Tim says, you know, we're all traveling through time together every day of our lives. All we can do is our best to relish this remarkable ride. And that's really such a, I just, I love the ending of the movie where he doesn't have to travel back in time anymore. And he just chooses to show up every day as if he already had. What I love about that is because that's what I can do as the audience person. I don't have the superpower, but I do have the superpower because I too can live every day as if I have traveled back a second time and I'm just here to relish this moment and to pay attention to my fellow humans and fellow, you know, living things on this planet and and act accordingly. And so I love that call to action. And I feel like Richard Curtis, he's a kindred spirit in that way of, you know, with Love Actually and with this film and um, that, you know, of trying to get people to do those things. And those are the kinds of stories he's trying to tell, which I think is why he made the choices that he did 
flaws and all, uh, certainly flaws, flaws and all, to tell this story for so that we could have it. I feel like I want to defend myself a little. I did not find this movie intolerable, and I hate to come across as like this horrible cynic who doesn't like a good Richard Curtis story with that wonderful message. I did actually like that. And I will say there's one scene towards the end of the movie where he talks to his father about going through each day twice, and then we see that happen. He goes through a single kind of typical day twice. And that is one of the best scenes I've ever seen in a movie. I thought it was wonderful. And it carried that message that we have to do our best to see each day as it comes for all of its beauty. So I agree with you, Kim, that was lovely. And I just wanted to defend my honor a little bit here as I'm not a terrible, terrible cynic. We know you're honorable you're, person. You're Anne. not a cynic <laughs> okay. at all, Anne. Just, uh, hey, sometimes you, you don't. Anne. Yeah, we love you, yeah. Anne. Sometimes you don't. You don't like certain movies. That's just the way it goes. We've all been there for sure. Okay. So one thing I want to mention before we wrap up our presentation is that when you're studying a story like this, you know, a masterwork, which we don't have an official definition for. And what I've encountered is that some people think, oh, it has to be one of the classics or something. But really a masterwork is a story that you're studying because it has some element that you want to steal like an artist or that you want to take and see, okay, what would this be like in my story? So that can be point of view, that can be genre, that can be all kinds of different elements. So when we're studying a masterwork like this, we are studying the mind of the writer who wrote the story, but you're also studying your mind as you go your reactions to the story. I will say that mindfulness practices help a lot with that, but that's all I'll say about that. Now, certain genres, characters, themes, and motifs will resonate with us because of our own life experiences. And when you're, an enjo- when you're enjoying a story, it's harder to think critically about it. For example, with About Time, I was expecting a straight-up romantic comedy too, even though Kim kind of prepped me for it. But I wasn't expecting to really like it. I'm not a huge fan of romantic comedies. So I had kind of low expectations going in. But when I started watching it and realized that it was going to be a lot more nutritious than just a straight up fun romantic comedy, then I started to, you know, I sunk into the story and I didn't think as critically about it until I was talking about it afterwards. So when I discussed it with other people, then I realized I for example, missed the fact that the father didn't have any interest in his daughter, didn't seem like he wanted to help Kit Kat get out of her um, difficult situation in life. I'm sure that that Curtis had lots of reasons why he chose what he did, but afterward I thought, hmm, that's kind of a problem. Okay, so I forgave a lot of plot holes in the story because the writer and actors exceeded my expectations going in. So that's one thing. And then another thing I want to mention is that our story grid tools are objective and they enable us to identify whether a story works beneath our own subjective preferences. So we can say, I like this movie or I didn't like this movie. Either way, we can look at it objectively and see, does this work? Now, these are fantastic tools. And obviously, we're all big fans of them here. But as writers, 
and of course editors, we still need to bring our own head, heart, and gut to the process of writing and revising stories. In essence, we need to use both as a system of checks and balances. So when you hear us talk about, oh, I didn't really enjoy this story, or oh, I didn't know what to expect, or whatever reaction we have to it, that is a check on the objective analysis that we are also using to check our subjective preferences. All right. Well, I think it's about time for us to end this episode. <laughs> yes, I've been waiting to say that. Oh, okay. man. Do they have, so there, I know there's bad dad jokes. Are there bad mom jokes too? They don't get as much press though. <laughs> oh, awesome. yes. I get to use both of them, right? All right. So has our analysis of About Time helped you better understand how a global internal genre works? Have you analyzed any stories using a global internal genre? And if so, how did you handle it? Is there a novel or film that you think is an excellent example of a global internal genre? Let us know as always on Twitter at StoryGridRT. Okay, to wind up each episode, this season we're taking questions from our listeners. And we have one this week from Christy Garrett, who is one of our students in the Level Up Your Craft uh, summer course, StoryGrid summer course. Okay, let's have a listen to what Christy is asking. This question may be a bit elementary, but do each of the 15 core scenes need to be full-fledged scenes? For example, Bridget Jones' climax scene was just a beat, wasn't it? It seems like many times the crisis and climax can happen so quickly, even in a novel, that they're not full-fledged scenes. So as a writer, do I just need to ensure that each of the 15 core scene elements are present in my story, even if there are some scenes that are doing double duty? Hi, Christy. Thank you so much for your question. Okay, so the 15 core scenes, of course, are those five commandments for each of the three acts in the story. These are the 15 scenes we list on the fool scout. Um, and they create the story spine, which has to turn on the global value. As a general rule, the 15 core scenes are completely separate entities, but that's not carved in stone, of course. Sometimes one scene can have more than one commandment. For example, the global turning point, progressive complication, and the global crisis can be in the same scene. And sometimes they're just seconds apart in a film, or they could be just pages apart or on the same page in a novel. You could also have the crisis and the climax in the same scene, or as is the case with Gran Torino, the climax and the resolution of the middle build are in the same scene. The important thing to remember here is that with the 15 core scenes, what you're doing is creating a solid story spine. So if you can do that by having more than one you know, one or more global commandment in a scene, then have at it, fill your boots. So thanks, Christy. I hope that answers your question and let us know what you think. If you have a question about a global internal genre or any other story principle, you can ask us on Twitter at StoryGridRT or better still, go to storygrid.com slash resources, click on the Editor Roundtable podcast and leave us a voice message, just like Christy did. That wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you so much, Anne, Jari, Kim, and Leslie, for your excellent editorial insights into About Time. 
We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to write a story whose global genre is internal. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. And if you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com forward slash editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers about us and by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Join us next week to find out whether Anne can make the case that the 2018 Marvel blockbuster Black Panther successfully disguises a society political revolution story as an action epic. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.